well, greetings uh, from Herndon. I am so glad to be with you all this morning. Um, as many of you know, I just had a, my wife and I just had a baby uh, a couple weeks ago. And so, uh, yeah, thank you. Well, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so if I fall asleep during the sermon, someone just nudge me or something. But if you will, uh, pray with me. Uh, Father God, we thank you for a, a, a day uh, to come and worship you. And we thank you that we've been reminded of truth, of truth of who you are and, and who we are to you. And so, Father, we pray that that would just continue, that, uh, that we would continue to hear truth and we would hear from you uh, who you are and who you've made us to be, and that that would give us hope. And Father, I don't know uh, what everyone brings into this room this morning. Uh, there's some that come in tired. There's some uh, that are heartbroken. There's some that are, that are worried, uh, that are excited, that, that, are, that are hopeful that they'll hear something that will make a difference. Um, but you know, you know how we all come into this room. And you know what it is our hearts most need to hear right now in this moment. And so, Father, we ask that you would come and you would speak and you would speak so clearly. And Father, uh, I don't want to get in the way. Uh, I, I, I think it's crazy that I am allowed to do this work. Um, and so I surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my thoughts, the things I've studied and prepared. I give it all to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I, I'm going to start by asking a couple questions. Are you disappointed with God? Has life not been going the way you thought? Has Jesus let you down? Um, I know this sounds a lot more like the beginning of a Zoloff commercial uh, than a sermon, uh, but Paxil, till Jesus comes, I'm all for it. Um, uh, but but uh, this, this, I mean, Gary says it's one of his favorite texts. Um, this text, I, I've wrestled with what to, what to say about it. Because it's a tough one. And it's a tough one that acknowledges the reality that sometimes we are just disappointed. Sometimes we just think, will it, will it always be like this? This isn't what I thought it would be. Um, and, and lately I feel like I have a lot of people coming uh, to, to, to meet with me, to have coffee with me or whatever, um, because they are disappointed with God. And they don't know what to do with that disappointment. And if I'm honest, I have a hard time sometimes knowing what they should do as well. Because I don't want to just give them just a, a simple answer. I don't want to just say, well, God is good um, because my dentist is good, but that doesn't mean I want a relationship with him, right? Like, I don't want to just say, like, well, God's good. You'll get through this. So what do you do when you are truly disappointed with God? As Gary said, we're looking at a conversation today with, with someone who is, who is wrestling with that thought who isn't experiencing Jesus the way he thought he would. It's a conversation between Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist. And so we're going to jump right in and we're going to look at the text. It's found in Matthew uh, chapter 11. Uh, your, um, your bulletin, we, we got the wrong bulletins from last week. Uh, and so, uh, so it's not printed in your bulletin. So if you don't have a Bible, if you got it on your phone, you can pull out your phone and look it up or you can just listen in. So this is Matthew 11. I'm going to read verses two through six. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
The, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is God's word. So before we unpack this conversation, let's talk about who John was. So John uh, had come on the scene uh, a little bit before Jesus and really had blown up. I mean, he was very popular among the people of Israel. People loved to go and listen to him preach. I mean, he was a little bit eccentric and crazy. You know, he ran around with like, you know, weird clothing and he said he ate locusts and, and he said kind of outrageous things, but the people loved him because he was bold. And so he had this mass of people that, that followed him around and he was very critical of, of the local politics. In fact, that's what got him into so much trouble. Right now, he's sitting in prison because of something he said against the king, against King Herod. Uh, and and so, so we find him in this moment where he's hanging by a thread. But, but he was also a supporter of Jesus. We know that at one point, he actually encouraged his disciples to leave him and go follow Jesus. And we know that at Jesus' baptism, John was there and he saw the heavens open up and he heard the voice of God declare, this is my son whom I am well pleased. But here, where we pick up his story, he is doubting the identity of Jesus. And you don't have to use much imagination to hear a dis disheartened tone in the question that he asked. Are you the one? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Think about it. Besides a few loyal disciples to John, the crowds were now all gone. John was feeling probably pretty irrelevant and forgotten, which is what he said he wanted. At one point, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. But that's an easy thing to say when things are going well. It's easy to be humble when people are constantly praising you. It's easy to say, hey, don't stay here. Um, you know, go, go, uh, go and be a, a part of a church that you can be passionate about uh, when there aren't empty seats. But when things are bad, when things are hard, faith is hard. John was a bold prophet of God, but he was also a messed up, broken human being, just like any of us. And he struggled like we struggle. So I'm sure John is sitting in prison and he's thinking, all right, I, 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 if this is the Messiah, if this is the one, and, and I've been serving him and I've been faithful to him and I've been pro proclaiming his truth boldly, why is my life such a wreck? If you're this great God, why are you letting bad things happen to a good person like me? How can I believe in you when my life is going like this? Haven't you asked that question before? And not only are, are things happening to John that don't seem fair, he's hearing about Jesus, and it seems like Jesus is living it up. We're told that John sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he is the one when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So what deeds were, were prompting John to go ask him a question? What, what deeds were prompting him to doubt the identity of the one he proclaimed Messiah when Jesus first came on the scene? Well, he heard that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, that he was hanging out with people who were blatantly sinful. This would have made no sense to John. In fact, John's disciples asked Jesus' disciples one time, hey, why don't you fast like us? Why doesn't your life look more like our life? Was John offended that Jesus had this reputation of being a glutton and drunkard while John is in prison suffering? In fact, just a few verses later in this same passage we read, in verses 18 and 19, this is what Jesus says. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. 
the son of man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So is John hearing about Jesus living it up and thinking, this guy can't be the one? Or maybe John sent his disciples to ask the question because Jesus wasn't acting like he thought the Messiah should. When he was hearing about the works of the Messiah and the, and the grace and the, and, the, and the works of mercy that he was performing, it didn't harmonize with what John wanted the Messiah to be, someone who brought judgment and wrath. In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he says, John shouts out to the people, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some scary stuff. John was preparing people for a Messiah with an ax. And so John's sitting in prison, and so maybe he's a little bit disappointed uh, because, because Jesus isn't doing the things that he thought. He isn't bringing justice the way he thought Jesus would. And maybe he's upset because it seems like Jesus is, is living life in a way that's counter to how he thought Jesus would be living his life. But either way, John was disappointed, and he was disappointed with Jesus. So what do you do when you're disappointed with Jesus? When someone uh, wants to talk to me about disappointments with Jesus, I, I normally first ask the question, what is it that you're expecting from him? What is it you're expecting from Jesus? And the answers are usually something to do with provision. He'll make me happier. He'll protect my kids. He'll provide me a spouse. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, someone sat across from me and said, I just expected that he would have my dad stay. That's heartbreaking. What are you expecting from Jesus right now? Like right now, in this moment, are you expecting something from him? Or have you stopped expecting because you've been let down in the past and because of those unmet expectations, you just don't expect much from them anymore? Pain and suffering often tempt us to doubt what we once believed to be true. Why? Because what we believe pointed to a different outcome than the one we are experiencing. John is experiencing a different outcome than what he expected. Many of us have had that experience or maybe are having that experience now. So then what do we do? What does John do? John asks a question. I think this is an important first step when we find ourselves disappointed with God. Ask him. Don't just stew on it. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Ask him. John went straight to him and flat out asked him, are you it? Are you the one? Or should I be looking for someone else? He asked him the question. And the question's an interesting one. It's not, it's not the most natural, and it's definitely not the first question I would ask, because think about it. John is sitting in prison. He's got a big problem. He's about to, to be executed. His life is hanging by a thread. Yet when he comes to Jesus to ask a question, he mentions nothing about his problem. He doesn't say, if you're the one, get me out of here. He just simply asks, are you it? Are you him? While I was preparing the sermon, I kept thinking about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Not the one who said, hey, remember me uh, when you come into your kingdom, but the other one. The other one who said, if you're the Messiah, get us off these crosses. Do you see the difference between the thief and John the Baptist? 
The thief is saying, prove you are the one by solving my problem, by doing what I want you to do in order to prove that you really are the one. And John is simply saying, are you the one? He attaches no conditions to it. Most of us begin our questioning of Jesus with a profoundly problem-centered approach. We want to know whether Jesus is going to give us what we want. Some of us say, well, I'm thinking about being a Christian and I'd like to know whether it's true or not, but I'm struggling because I really want to be successful in business. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. So will Jesus help me be successful? Or I'm struggling because I'm unhappy in my marriage and I'm thinking about getting a divorce. Will Jesus support my decision? Or I have a problem with self-esteem or, or I have a problem with guilt. I, I've been in a lot of unhealthy relationships because of it. If I come to Jesus, will he make me feel good about myself? Or a person says, I'm, I'm gay and I want to know that if I come into Christianity, will I be supported or will I be condemned? Or if I come to Jesus, will my circumstances get better? Those are all fine questions to ask him, but they are the wrong first question. The thief says, I want, you, I want to know what you're going to do about my life before I give myself to you. But John the Baptist simply just says, are you, in? are you him? Are you the one? You see, when we ask the wrong first question, we are assuming we already know what we need and how life should go. How in the world can we assume we know who we are or what we need before we know him, the one who thought us up, who created us? How can we know who we are and what we were built for before we know the one who designed us? See, the first question, we have to get that first question right. We have to ask the right first question. John in his suffering and in his doubting doesn't say, I know I need to be out of prison, so therefore, if you're the one, get me out. Prove to me you're the one by getting me out of prison. Instead, I'm sure John's thinking, all right, if I'm, if I'm on my own, of course I need to get out of prison. Of course, the only way I can be happy is if I'm out of prison. But if you're the one, whatever you ask of me will be a tiny thing compared to what you'll give me. Whatever sacrifice you ask of me will be nothing compared to the glory that will be mine if you are indeed the one. If you are the one, whatever you decide is right for me must be right for me, even if it doesn't feel right. See, either you have a God who is defined by your circumstances or a God who defines your circumstances. Listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, he knows you, he knows you more than you know yourself, and he knows what you need in order to be all that he had in mind when he thought you up. And if he's not the one, he's really of no use to you. So it makes no sense to say, if you are the one, if you are who you say you are, will you let me live life the way I think I should live it? That makes no sense. If he is the one, he has to know best. The reason someone can be searching for Jesus and not receiving any answers is because if you think about it, the thief's question is not a question. It's an order. If you've been searching for Jesus and you don't feel like you've heard an answer, have you been asking a question or have you just been making a demand? When we come to Jesus with conditions, when we say, well, I would be interested in believing in you if you do this for me, what we're really saying is, I don't want to know if what you want for me is something different than what I want for me. 
I only want you on my terms. So maybe the reason he's not giving you an answer is because you aren't asking him a question. If you come with conditions, you don't really want to know who he is. You're not really open to him. But John, he asked the question. He shows us that we need to start by saying, are you the one? And that's it. Because everything else starts with that question, knowing the answer to that question. I can't know anything else until I know the answer to that question. Are you him? Are you it? Are you the one? That's the right first question. Because then I have a God who isn't defined by my circumstances, but who defines my circumstances. Once I know that, it'll change my perspective on everything else. It'll change my perspective on, on, on prison. It'll change my perspective on my marriage, on, on relationships, on business, on, on, on everything. It will change how I view everything when I've gotten the answer to that first question. Now, let me say this. Does Jesus want you healed? Does he want you to be in relationships that encourage you and build you up? Does he want you to have a dad who stays? Absolutely. Those are all a part of God's perfect design. Sickness and broken relationships and dads who leave were not what God had in mind when he thought us up. So if you ask those good questions, the answer is always yes, of course I want that. I want that for you. But it's the wrong first question. C.S. Lewis once wrote in a letter to a friend who was suffering, suffering is not always sent as a punishment. This is clearly established for believers by the book of Job. It would certainly be most dangerous to assume that any given pain was penal. I believe that all pain is contrary to God's will, absolutely, not relatively. When I am taking a thorn out of a child's finger, the pain is absolutely contrary to my will. If I could have chosen a situation without pain, I would have done so. But I do will the pain caused by removing the thorn rather than leaving the thorn where it is. God would answer yes to every question about doing away with sickness and pain and brokenness, but it's not the right first question. The question, are you the one, moves God from being defined by whatever circumstances we find ourselves in into being a God who defines those circumstances. So that's the first thing. The first thing we see is that when we're struggling, when we're in pain, when we're, when we're doubting, the first question is just to say, are you the one without any conditions? Allow him to answer that question. And then the second thing we learn from John's question uh, is uh, he says, are you the one or should we, should we keep looking for someone else? See, John knows that if Jesus isn't the one, we're gonna have to keep looking for something else that we're all looking for the one. Maybe in our portfolio, maybe in our career, our bank account, and a person, a girlfriend, or a husband, a child, or maybe just a dream of what we one day hope to be. We're all human. We're all designed as dependent creatures who need something to worship. So if you reject Jesus as the one, you're gonna have to turn something else into the one. And as we've looked at Jesus this year so far, have you found one that is better than him. As we've looked at Jesus, have you found one that is more compassionate or gracious or patient or powerful or as humble as him? 
Jesus is patient with us because, because he knows how offensive he is to us. Jesus says in response to John's question, you will know who I am when you are offended by me. Look at it. Uh, look at verse six. It doesn't actually say that. That's my interpretation. But this is what it says. It says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. Another way to translate that would be, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who does not stumble because of who I am. Or blessed is the one who is offended by me and stays. You see, Jesus knows that the only people who have found the blessedness of him are those who have done the deep and hard wrestling with who he is, with his offensiveness. And what makes Jesus offensive? Well, that he came primarily not as an example, but as a savior. Examples don't offend us. They inspire us. We love a good example. We love to look up at people and say, yeah, one day I can be like that guy. That doesn't offend us. We don't, we don't execute. We don't put people to death who are good examples for us. But a savior offends us. Like the theologian Chris Pratt said at the MTV Movie Awards recently, Nobody's perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You're imperfect. And if you're willing to accept that, you will encounter grace. And grace was paid for by someone else's blood. If Jesus Christ had come in power and said, I'm going to save you through my example. Here's the way you should live. We'd be like, okay. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's figure this out. But the Apostle Paul says the cross offends us. Why? Because the cross says you are so lost and helpless that only the blood of God's Son can save you. I know I'm a mess, but I'm not, am I that much of a mess? Unless you see yourself as that bad, you won't see and experience the blessedness that comes from Jesus. So Jesus is actually glad that John is offended by him because that means John is getting it. That John is getting that the one did not come primarily as an example, but as a savior. And John already knew this. When Jesus first appeared on the scene, it's John who cried out, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew that the one that was coming was coming to save, not just to teach. But many of us, like John, know that too, but it's easy to forget and reduce Jesus to an example, a sort of helper. Once the newness of our salvation wears off, over time, Jesus becomes more and more of an example to us and less and less a savior. And so when we, when we encounter suffering and trial, we look to Jesus as our example instead of as our savior. Has Jesus become more of an example to you or is he still that beautiful savior that saved you from the depths? Jesus as an example is good, but he's an inoffensive Christ. But blessed are those who are offended by Christ and stay. Jesus as savior is offensive because that means we're saved by grace only. Martin Luther once said, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, 
sanctifies only sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Blessed are those who are offended by Christ and they stay. One of the things I love about Jesus is he isn't offended if we're struggling with his offensiveness. Right after his conversation with John's disciples, Jesus publicly praises John. He calls him a prophet. And he says, there's not been one on earth that surpasses John. This is right after John has been struggling and doubting who Jesus is. This is right after John has been disappointed. And that didn't change Jesus's view of John one bit. And it won't change his view of you either. If you are offended by Jesus, if you are struggling with him, stay. Don't go. Ask him the questions. Are you it? Are you the one? Or should I be looking for someone else? In the Chronicles of Narnia, a girl named Jill approaches a stream to get a drink of water, uh, but there's this giant lion right by the stream. And the lion senses her hesitation to approach. And so he says, are you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Uh, could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you that in your word, we are invited to wrestle with hard questions. I thank you that even our great examples like John the Baptist, we see that it's not easy that in fact, even John needed a savior. So Father, we, uh, we come to you acknowledging that we need you to remind us of the truth of who Jesus is. And Father, I pray and ask that as we continue to go through this day and through this week, no matter what our circumstances tell us, that we would be reminded of who you are and who you've said we are and that you would define our circumstances, that we would be able to worship you even on hard days, just like we do on good days. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.